Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is Richard Corder, a healthcare consultant and managing director at the management consulting firm Tier One Performance Solutions. In this podcast, we discuss Richard's journey from his start as an apprentice in the hotel industry in London, England, to following his heart to Boston, Massachusetts, his decision to enter the healthcare industry after his own experience as an inpatient, and how he applied lessons he learned from the hospitality industry to become an expert on patient experience, and ultimately his move into healthcare consulting. We conclude the podcast with a discussion about leadership and mentorship. I hope you enjoy listening to Richard's story, and if you find it valuable, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening, and here is Richard Corder. So welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So you studied hospitality management at West London University in London, England. What brought you to West London University and, and what interested you in hospitality? So I have been in hospitality um, summers, vacations, weekends since I, was a, since I was a kid. So probably before the legal age of being technically allowed to work, I was bar backing and waiting tables because I suppose I liked the color of money at that age. <laughs> and it was... Uh, Something that I realized that if you if the better you did it, the better the tips were, so the better the better you performed. The more I, the more I earned, and uh, that and I enjoyed, quite frankly, serving others. So a career in the hotel business was always something. Uh, certainly, as I got through to the end of high school, something that interested and something I applied to go to college to do. I unfortunately didn't graduate. Didn't technically graduate from high school. So I don't have a high school diploma. I didn't have a high school diploma. And so I went to work in London at the Savoy Group of Hotels as an apprentice. And it was through that, then in the weekends and evenings, that we went to school to get a technical degree. And so the University of West London, I think it was called Slough University at the time, or it's changed its name, okay. uh, was where we went where my my uh, cohort and I went on the weekends and the evenings. So it really, it wasn't as if I chose West London University. It was where you went if you were an apprentice at the Savoy. Interesting. So uh, I've I've heard a lot about apprenticeship programs in Europe. It seems like it's more of a thing, a European thing. Is that is that the kind of uh, of program you were involved in, where it's a structured kind of program, or is it something else? No, very structured, five years. Wow. Um, every aspect of, you can imagine every aspect of, of hotel operations. So, and really structured to be from a very, very junior roles when you start uh, to ultimately what would be close to, I suppose, a capstone project in your fifth year project, capstone role in your fifth year. And I spent most of my fifth year in the sales marketing side of the Savoy Hotel. So, uh, and we used to joke, you can, if you, you, you pass through the apprenticeship, it's designed like this, but it felt as if you would be promoted once you became competent. So once you mastered your particular role you were in as a, 
as a, a butcher or a baker or a chef or a waiter. And it was literally that, those basics of, those basic of positions. Just when you thought you'd mastered it, then you'd get moved on to the next one, um, <laughs> which, which in retrospect, I think you look back and go, ah, it's a really rich, incredible learning experience. At the time, it was probably quite, probably quite frustrating, right, Frank? You know, it's good. <laughs> I loved it. Just as you were getting competent, you get yanked to something else. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah, all right. It's sort of like the Peter principle, but intentionally. That's exactly it. <laughs> That's exactly right, Mark. Okay. Okay. So you finished that program and uh, looking at your resume, it looks like you came pretty much right away, came over to, to Boston um, to work at the Four Seasons. Is that is that accurate? So it's accurate for the resume because what the resume doesn't reflect is the real story, right? So okay. actually at the end of the fourth year, and those were academic years of the apprenticeship, at the end of the fourth year, uh, I won a um, menu competition through the through the hotel group, uh, which afforded me a uh, scholarship to either attend Cornell or Lausanne in Switzerland. So I chose the Cornell Hotel School. So I came to Cornell for a seven-week executive development program in the summer of 1992. And who would have known that also going to the same executive development program is the woman that's now my wife of almost 25 years. So oh, wow. Okay. That's what the resume doesn't believe is I met and fell in love with my best friend that summer. And she was working, uh, running a conference center in Boston for John Hancock. Okay. So I went back to finish my final year of the apprenticeship and, and figured while I was doing that, um, just networked and, and, and found that there was, a, there was a, a common friend between the general manager of the Four Seasons in Boston and me. So I networked and got an interview. And, and so that's what then allowed me to move to the States in the summer of 93, was then to take that job at the Four Seasons Hotel in Boston. It also happened to be two blocks from my girlfriend's apartment. Oh, that's convenient. All right. So you came to Boston for love. Uh, that's not. So what was it like, you know, leaving London, leaving England and coming to, to Boston? I, I think from a, from a, so wonderful because that, I, you know, long distance dating, a long distance relationship is, is, is just, it's heartbreaking and it's bloody expensive. Yeah. So all that fell away. <laughs> so uh, and from a work standpoint, it was it was especially interesting because what I what I had learned in London was you know very very high standards in, 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 in around service and around um, operations, but in a very formal environment. And what I was then afforded at the Four Seasons in Boston was similarly very high standards with a high level of expectation for those for whom you're serving, but in a little bit more of a, dare I say, an informal environment where we would, we would bend the rules a little bit more. And so it, it, was, it, was, it was, dare I say, a more uh, fun kind of place, space, okay. to, to still deliver a high level of quality and service. How much of that was... Um corporate culture versus, you know, um, regional culture? It's a good question, Mark. I suppose my immediate response, my immediate reaction is say corporate culture. I mean, we had a general, I mean, I was learning in those days, we had a general, our culture at the Four Seasons Hotel in Boston was part 
corporate culture out of Canada where, you know, Four Seasons had been founded. But it was in a large part what made it so unique and special in Boston was our local general manager, was Robin Brown. And the way he led, uh, his expectations of us, uh, the environment the environment he created, what he rewarded, I probably carry with me to this day as far as how I lead. And so, so it was probably, I want to say it was as much local culture uh, instilled and led, Mark, by Robin, by, by Robin Brown. Okay. So, um, so you, you spent uh, about four years with four seasons. And then you, prior to that, you'd been in, in your apprenticeship for five years. So a long time, I mean, you know, uh, and even before that, you were saying, you know, uh, part-time work as a kid. So what did you, what were the, like the most important lessons that you learned from your time in, in hospitality? Because we're going to talk about you're making your jump here uh, into healthcare in just a second. Um, hire the right people. And I know that that probably sounds really basic, but, um, hire the right people, train them well, give them the resources and the tools and, and, and put them in the system to do their, their best job. And then get clear about what you expect and get out of their way. Most folks that I experienced uh, in my hotel days you know, didn't just wander into a hotel and say, oh, I think I'll work in a hotel for, you know, there's nothing better to do. They were called to do it because they love, they love an aspect of the business. It's different for different people. What, what raised us up in Boston, and I think in, in, at the time, so early, mid-90s, made us the, the number one brand in Boston is we really took care of each other. And we believed that if, if folks were working in a, in, a, in a system that allowed them to do their best work and supported them to do their best work and made doing your best work easy, if the system was not kind of the inverse of that would be the system was not stacked against us. It was easy to go in and do your best work. Uh, it was easy to make a decision, feel empowered, uh, take a risk. So I, I, that would be my headline, Mark, is, is it? Is one of, what it took away from it was 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 people, and then put them in the environment and give them the tool, put them in the environment to do their best selves, and give them the tools and resources to to do that. I mean, that's kind of um, that sounds like uh, you've carried that forward. Um, we're going to get to that a little later here, but uh, okay. Um, so you, like I said, you spent about four years with the Four Seasons, and then you joined the Northeast Health Systems as an environmental services supervisor. So here you're, you're leaving hospitality per se, uh, though I suspect you, um, maybe that's, uh, I know that, that there is a significant element of hospitality, right? In, in our business, in our healthcare business, right? Yeah. So you took on this role of, of, of environmental services. Um, how did your training and experience in hotels allow you to jump over to hospital management? So, um, environmental services is a is a is a fancy way of saying housekeeping, right? So it's okay. And while there are levels of um, high level disinfection and uh, certain precautions we, we take in healthcare that are clearly different than than than, than hospitals. It was a transferable skill, and in, if you go back to not technically having a high school diploma and and not having worked in healthcare before, I had to find something 
that allowed me to kind of transition relatively easy, so easily, I should say. So, and I the, the first job I got at what is uh, yeah Northeast Health Systems Beverly Hospital, now part of Leahy, um, was on the evening shift. So I guess I you know put him on the three to eleven, and he he can't do much damage. Okay. Um, and that was an intentional move, partly as a result of having been a patient. So oh, okay. I was admitted to a hospital while I was still an employee of the Four Seasons and got to be a, a patient at the hospital for five days and found myself reflecting on some things that I was seeing that, that didn't seem to be um, that well uh, designed that well managed, that well resourced. Back to what you were just asking about, kind of what were the lessons from from hospitality? Those elements didn't seem to be in play, and so that pivot was quite an intentional one, driven by this belief that I don't I don't mean to put a negative spin on it, but the thought at the time that has stuck with me is if we ran a hotel uh, the way they were running a hospital would, would be out of business. It just doesn't, didn't seem that well designed or what that well resourced or that well. And, and, but, but far be it for me to, um, kind of stand on the outside and, and, um, pause it towards something I didn't know. And so I made the decision to, to shift, to, to, to make a shift, career shift. And yeah, like you say, go from being, um, go from being on a, on a management track, at the at the four seasons to to getting uh, the evening shift housekeeping supervisor role at the local hospital. So you were so this was uh, this was not like a kind of a random oh I could make a couple of extra dollars maybe no. kind of thing. It was it was you you knew you wanted to go into healthcare. That's that's neat. And then, in fact, c- completely contrary to wanting to make a couple of extra dollars, it, it was the antithetical to that mark. It was <laughs> was. I actually took the second shift because there was a $2, I think it was $2 an hour extra differ, differential for working. The, and, and still that was far below what I'd been making in the four seasons. And I just remember, remember my wife looking at me and saying, <laughs> you know, I hope you know what you're doing. Okay. Uh, yeah. Not fortunately, you know, we had, I think our first child was a baby at the time. So we didn't have a lot to put at risk, but it, it was certainly a, a downshift, I suppose. <laughs> So, uh, looking at your uh, some notes you had about about you know your time there, you talked about improvements in in um, service measures. And so, what were you trying to do? What was your vision going into this role? If you had made this deliberate shift, you took a cut in pay in order to do it. What were you? Uh, what did you learn in that first job in healthcare? And how did you try to bring what you had learned in in from your time with the Four Seasons and, uh, and and your other experiences in hospitality? So I went into it with a, I suppose, well, the time felt a little Pollyanna, but a belief that that would be a good way to learn healthcare. It would be kind of a practicum. It would harken back almost to my days of an apprenticeship. An apprenticeship wasn't available, but... Um, for anyone who's worked that kind of shift work um, about as close to the front line of operations, there's no quicker way to learn a business. And so, especially, you know, in, in, in hospitals, when you're not on the day shift, your staffing level drops and yet the acuity of your patients does not. It just requires a, 
you know, it's, it, it's an all hands type of mentality. And you just, you get to see how a business works and you get to see what works and what doesn't. And um, they used to joke, you know, with a uniform and a set of master keys, you can also get pretty much anywhere in the hospital. So you kind of, you just wander into places and introduce yourself. And, and it was really through that, uh, that, that um, I got then recognized by a vice president who, who was the one that suggested I go to school and get my master's degree. So, but it was very much uh, the thought was this is, this is the way I could learn. Um, what did I bring over? Some just basic, basic stuff about how we communicate. Um, so as an example, before every shift, um, instead of staff just coming in, signing in, going to their assignment, uh, the shift staff, I would always get there early, always make sure that, my expectations of them were things that I was taking seriously. So clean pressed uniform, if I wasn't wearing one, how could I expect other people to wear them? And I think that was different for a lot of folks that I was walking into an environment that was, you know, typically a little bit in the shadows of the hospital in the evening, uh, getting there early and, and doing it, what we in the hotel business would call a pre-meal um, and just doing a stand-up kind of huddle of, okay, these are the assignments, busy hospital tonight, We've got some a busy emergency room. And I think for the first couple of cycles through that, people looked at me going, what are you doing? And it was just this sense of, let's all get on the same page. Let's understand what we're here to do. Um, and I forget, I think it's a US president who said, whatever you are, be a good one. But let's let's make this place as clean and as, and as safe as we can make it. That's our job. And that's an important part of uh, extraordinary patient care and, and just that daily reminder to folks of you got a really important job and let's go do it and let's do it together and let's think as a team a lot of it was that from from memory mark um mm. and and i loved it because i don't think these people have been cared for like that before so it's pretty special that makes a big i mean my experience as a manager and just having people believe they're cared about isn't a really important <laughs> right pretty basic but it's it's easy to overlook when you get busy and yeah, just cared about as human beings. And, and, you know, someone shows up late and, the, and I think that their the previous experience of being the first reaction was they were going to get written up. So, well, no, why are you late? What's going on? Well, it's difficult to get to work. Why was it difficult to get to work? Well, I don't have a car. Okay. Anybody else here got a car lives near Joe. Could you pick him up? Yeah, I'll do it. It's like, that's community. That's team. That's people taking care of each other. You, you don't get that if if your default is anything other than the relationships and people. So that was was just fun. So you were also working on your masters at the time. Yeah. Yeah. How did that uh, How did that help you make the transition? Uh, so you're working on a masters in health health administration, right? M MHA. Yeah. So how did that help you continue to make your transition from hospitality into uh, the health? Uh, industry. I guess what was interesting for me was school up until then had always been a real struggle because I could mm. never apply. And it's one of the reasons that I had such a hard time in high school now that reflecting back is I couldn't apply it to what practically made sense to me. And I didn't know that at the time, but I remember being in high school with a course load of mathematics and physics and what have you. And I remember looking at the coursework and going, how is this going to help me run a hotel? And I, so I could never do the, the, it just felt out of context. So when I found the curriculum of the, the MHA, it, all of it spoke to me. 
I just I could see it. I could I, I could. Uh, I mean, the the accounting was in the context of healthcare. The 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 it, there were all these practical applications. So I could I could just see it. And then in class, I would I would have examples of you know trying to get a budget to work, uh, trying to get the right amount of FTEs for a certain amounts for a certain kind of in our in our world in housekeeping, it's typically around cleanable square footage. Um, so it all became just really practical, really quickly, and so it just it, it it I hit my groove. It became easy, and then it was easy to go to. And I think one of the things Simmons afforded us was they actually expected us to come to that particular. I don't know was that particular cohort or whether it was that particular class or the or maybe the professors, but they expected us to bring different perspectives to. Uh, the healthcare coursework, if you like, Mark. So it was encouraged to say, well, you know, what what would a lesson be from you know, from hospitality that we might think about this particular problem differently? So it just it 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 all started. It all started to just make sense. I remember finding myself looking forward to going to class, which had never been a part of my reality. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So you um, you spent about three years with uh, Northeast Health Systems, um, and then you made the jump, as we were joking before we started, to uh, west of Worcester, as, as they say in Massachusetts. So this is referring, uh, you went out to the to kind of the western side of the state to work as director of guest services for Cooley Dickinson Hospital uh, in Northampton, and I was. Uh, uh, I I joke about the West of Worcester thing because I'm uh, my sister was actually born at Cooley Dickinson, and uh, I'm a UMass grad a couple times, and my, you know all my family is so we're all like connected to to that area, so uh, affectionately refer to it as West of Worcester and yeah. the and the Happy Valley is. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, what took you out to um, so what took you out to Cooley Dickinson? It's not I mean there's you can't. Uh, you can't shake a stick without knocking into 25 different hospitals in Boston. So what took you out to, out to the Western part of the state? <laughs> so um, right place, right time or wrong place. Wrong. No, it was absolutely right place, right time. One of my one of really uh, favorite parts of my career. I love that hospital. I love Northampton. We lived in Amherst uh, and it was right place, right time, right kind of sequence of events. So what was happening in the late 90s, Mark, if you, I don't know if you recall, uh, but uh, hospitals were going through a, a, an awakening almost to rec- to this recognition that um, a patient a patient may actually have a valid perception of their care uh, that hospitals should be, I'm really kind of simplifying it, but should be paying attention to. Um, and so what was beginning to get um, crafted and ultimately put into place with what we now know as HCAPs or uh, the, 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 kind of the early days of value-based purchasing. And one element of value-based purchasing was going to be uh, a patient's perception of their care. So they were going to be surveyed um, by um, a, a hospital to say, you know, please rate your care. So what hospitals were, I think, beginning to, to kind of wake up to is this, this service customer element um, to what they needed to pay attention to in their market, uh, and specifically hospitals in competitive markets, and you know as well as, right, because Cooley Dickinson's in a pretty competitive market with Day State 
to the south and, and um, you know, UMass to the east. If you're looking for a large academic mm-hmm. medical center, you, you, you've got options mm-hmm. not that far away from Cooley Dickinson. And the CEO at the time, Craig Mellon, um, had specifically gone out to um, search for what, yeah, at the time I think it was called director of, I can't remember the title now, I think you just said it, whatever it was called. Guest services. Right? Guest services, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, it was funny because it had, the search firm had reached out to me and while I was still at Beverly Hospital, I was still at Northeast, um, still at uh, Northeast Health Systems. And I'd gone home to my wife, who's born and raised actually in the town we live in, in Ipswich. And I said, hey, what about looking at an opportunity at, at, uh, at, at, uh, at in Northampton? And she said, and you'll appreciate this, Mark. She said, home of Zoo Mass? There's no way we're moving out. So Perfect I was like, place what to do raise I know? Kids. Okay, you know, I'm still relatively new to the state, new to the country. I said, no, I'm not interested, but thank you very much. And then about, I don't know what it was, Mark, but maybe it was two months later, I was actually in class at Simmons and one of my classmates was a senior manager out at Cooley Dickinson. Oh, wow. And she said, Richard, this is going to be really sound really weird, but we're looking for what I think is you. We're looking for someone with a hotel background but has got now enough experience in healthcare that you could actually manage and oversee all of our non-clinical uh, support departments. So I went back to my wife. I said, well, this is twice now that this has come to us. We should at least go take a look. And we went out to Western Mass and went out for a weekend, actually, before I actually even interviewed. And just spent a weekend out there. And it just, as, as you know, I just fell in love with the area and walked through the hospital. And then it just, it just all, um, it sang to me. And so we interviewed and I was very fortunate to, to get the job. And we, we moved out there. Oh. It's a beautiful area. I mean, oh, we jo- we're joking about it, but it's a beautiful area. It's just stunning, and the people are special, and everything about it was was uh, was just dude, it was just super, super, super opportunity. The job was great. The opportunities that was afforded by Craig and the senior team and the board were incredibly. <laughs> I would have to pinch myself some days and go, "Okay, I'm still not 40 years old, and I'm being given all of this serious responsibility." And it was just fun. It was just a blast. So you went out as director of guest services. Uh, you were there for eight years. So I'm just going to kind of summarize here for a second. You were there for eight years. Uh, and when you left, you were the vice president of operations and facilities management. So you made quite a progression is kind of what you're, you were giving quite a lot of trust. So how did you go about that process? Like, how did, how did you find yourself? How did you, um, uh, you know, move up? So you had been director uh, or uh, night supervisor of housekeeping. Uh, how do you go from there to vice president of operations and facilities management? <laughs> uh, it's probably dumb luck. You, you ask for things. I mean, the old, just the old reminders of ask. If you want something, ask. What's the worst thing that can happen? Someone's going to say no. And I think the older we get, we sometimes just forget that or we shy away from it or we don't have the courage to, well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I mean, you're not going to lose. You're not going to, I mean, someone's going to say no. And then the flip side of that was I'd also say yes to everything before I knew what I was saying yes to. So I remember sitting in a senior management team and, and Craig, Craig said something like, and I'm sure this is, I'm sure if you talk to him, he'd remember the story very differently. But I remember the story as um, who wants to oversee uh, us getting getting prepared for the next visit from the Joint Commission? And I said, oh, I'll do that. 
And we walked out of the meeting. One of my colleagues looked at me. She goes, you have no idea what you just said yes to, do you? I said, nope, not at all. Oh, I no. Said, but I got to figure out. We, we got to figure this out. She goes, and she had some kind of, you know, fresh remark, like, don't come crying to me when, you know, you realize you're working 15 hours a day. And, and so it was that. It was just, it was kind of, if I wanted something, I asked. And it wasn't always pretty and easy. And then there was a couple of times when I think, you know, Craig and I probably went, you know, toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose, not nose-to-nose, that's too extreme, but where we had to say, okay, you stick to what you're doing, I'll stick to what I'm doing. But yeah, ask, uh, say yes before you know what you're going to do. And then just surrounded myself with just a superb team. I mean, the the team that we built out there, and and it wasn't without some turnover at times, um, but just some of the some of the, the, the best I've been fortunate to work with. And we, we knew what the job was and um, we got on and did it to, to the best of our abilities. So they, they were looking pretty hard for, for somebody pretty specific when they came and recruited you. Yeah. What was the problem they were looking to solve? So I think um, we had, I think the problem they were looking to solve, good question. When I got there, we had some pretty deplorable uh, measures of the experience that our patients were having. So uh, we were we were using a vendor at the time, and I want to say for hospitals our size, um, I think we were in the we were in the single digits of performance compared to other hospitals our size. And Cooley Dickinson had by then a track record of lifting itself up from poor performance. Craig had done a stellar job. I think he'd been the modern healthcare's top small turnaround hospital several years before. So he knew that you can go from zero to hero with 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 the right people and the right resources. And so I think I think they wanted to move that, and and I think they wanted more of a kind of cohesive service orientation to um at what, what i would call our support services our non-clinical support services so housekeeping food service uh facilities the, the kind of infrastructure that we put around uh the folks that are there really doing the running of a hospital and i'm being a little crass with it but you know it's the doctors and nurses show up every day that we're going to care for patients uh for all of that you you, you you need to put an infrastructure around it that makes it that makes it harm and we were that and uh so it was so I think it was part organize all those things under one umbrella, and then it was also uh, what are we going to do about the measures that that are are important to us and are going to start becoming even more and more important because they're actually going to start putting some some dollars at risk if we don't if we don't improve yeah so what were the what was like tell me like one thing you did that really made a big difference was there one can you point at something? We really changed up how we did um, our new hire orientation. So we really wanted to showcase the culture that we were creating, that we were leading, that we were striving for every day, uh, the expectations we were placing on ourselves and taking pride in, and therefore the expectations that we were going to expect of others. And so instead of this what I think prior to not just myself, but myself and some others of the team getting there, which was kind of a, you know, a ho-hum, almost a, 
standing ritual of you're going to be oriented, you're going to spend one day in orientation. We really amped it up. And this was this was showtime. And we were damn proud of that organization, the work we were doing. And we weren't going to risk uh, hiring people that, that didn't take that as seriously as us. And so we would... <laughs> We would, we would say things like, if this isn't for you, that's okay. But you just, you can't do it here because we're working too hard on taking our jobs seriously without taking ourselves too seriously, having some fun while we do it, holding ourselves to a high set of standards. Um, and I think when we first started having those conversations, people looked at us like we had three heads and then folks got into it and it and it started to make a difference and it becomes a self-perpetuate self-fulfilling self-fulfilling prophecy mark you know it's so oh my god this is actually it, it is actually a more fun place to work so i want to come I, I actually want to come to work and and um i, I want to solve problems because they're mine because this is mine so it, anyway it kind of created a cool culture and then the other i think some other things that we did that felt like really heavy lifting at the time were things things as simple as let's let's start creating some standard work around how we answer the telephone at the switchboard. And what I was learning was those are the places that I could affect change because they reported. There's a little kind of, you know, draconian perhaps, but the head of the switchboard was on my team. So we could have a conversation about how can we make this happen? Let's talk about the benefits. And then some of the other things, you know, when we started to get into some really big projects like building a new hospital wing, we went the really crazy route of actually asking the employees that were going to occupy this new space, what do you want in the space? We actually, what I now know is kind of user, user design um, an experience-based design. We actually went to the, I remember going to the pathologists who were going to be in the new lab space and saying, what, what are your needs for space? And like, what, they wouldn't meet with me because I don't know whether they thought I was joking or something. I was like, no, what do you guys need? What do you want? I'm not going to say you're going to get it all, but let's at least have the conversation. So those are just some things we did. So you, um, you were there for eight years. Yeah. And you'd been with, uh, uh, prior to that, you'd been with Northeast for three years. Um, so you, you now had what, 11 years of experience. Yeah, 11 years of experience in healthcare, and you make a jump out of healthcare all of a sudden, uh, not, <laughs> for, not for too long, but you joined a company called Curbside. Yeah. What, uh, what drew you away from, I mean, you committed all this uh, energy into healthcare, and then you jumped out for, for a little bit. What, what was the draw? So there wasn't as much of a jump as perhaps it looks like. So Curbside provides valet parking services to hospitals. Well, okay. it did at the time. I don't think it exists anymore. It got bought or sold. And the CEO of Curbside had, and I, I think I, I was actually a customer of theirs. They, they, were a, they provided that service for us at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. And the CEO and I had gotten to know each other pretty well, and, and he, he wanted a chief operating officer. Timed at about the time when I had probably um, done all the growing I was going to do at Cooley Dickinson Hospital, and the, the only other, the next job would have probably been chief operating officer. And I think at the time Craig didn't have one because he we weren't big enough, and 
I think Craig had gone away on a sabbatical, but we we had a, we had an interim CEO, and I wasn't about to take over that person's role. So, not that I couldn't have stayed, but it kind of the growing was the growing there was done, um, and I was looking for another opportunity, and I was I looked at an opportunity um, at a hospital in uh, Central Massachusetts, um, now part of the UMass system, and I looked at this opportunity, and. This opportunity provided, I suppose, two big things. One was I thought it might be kind of fun to try something different, right? Hmm. Like try being a vendor. Try being on that commercial side where you've actually got to hone your sales skills. You've got to hone your business development skills. You've got to um, – there's competition in the market that's pretty fierce. Um, I just thought it would be fun to learn something different. And operations for me are operations. So it wasn't that different. It was still going to be around people and uh, and the and the other thing that it allowed us to do uh, was it allowed us to move back to the coast here in Massachusetts. And mm-hmm. while we loved, to your point in our conversation, everything about Amherst, uh, we missed the ocean. And the curbside job allowed us to move back to my wife's hometown here in Ipswich. So it was kind of twofold. It was try something new and move back to the coast um, and move close to my wife's parents. Those are good reasons. Um, <laughs> so you weren't with curbside all that long because you moved on to, in 2009, you joined Mass General, Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, as the Senior Director of Service Excellence. Yeah. Um, so kind of still staying in your wheelhouse of, uh, of uh, service orientation, it sounds like, but Mass Gen is a whole other <laughs> animal, right? I mean, it's a, it's a different scale. It's a it's a much larger organization than you'd been with in the past. Yeah. Uh, how'd that come about and what was that like? So I left curbside because I got fired. Um, <laughs> and I remember the day I got, I remember driving back from the office to my house and I hadn't told my wife, I called one of my mentors. Um, and I said, I, I was, I was beside myself. I said, I got fired. And she said, it's the best thing that's ever happened to you. Cause we all need one of these in our life. I was like, what are you talking oh, about? Okay. And in retrospect, easy to say now, but in retrospect, it was. And I, I don't mean to take that lightly because I, you know, I have friends and colleagues right now that are getting fired and laid off. And it ain't easy. And it's, I think it's a little flippant to suggest in the face of a current reality that that is. But that's what happened. And so I had, uh, there's a five-month window in there where I had to look for another job. And I was just, again, blessed to be at the right place at the right time where similar to what Cooley Dickinson had been looking for eight, nine years earlier, uh, Mass General was looking for someone with um, a service background, a hotel background, perhaps a non-traditional, non-healthcare background to to lead their service excellence program. Um, so I, I landed there. And it was interesting because to, to your point in your question mark about this being a kind of mammoth big organization, as I made that uh as I was making that transition, what was a couple of things that were telling at the time. One was, it was what was interesting was the people that wanted to send me to, to celebrate my new job at Mass General were my old Cooley Dickinson team. So if you imagine, I've been away there for a year, and they invite me to go back to Western Mass, back to the you know as you coined earlier, the Happy Valley, yeah, um, and take me out for dinner. This and doctors and nurses. We just had this wonderful evening. And I remember one doctor pulling me to one side and saying. Congratulations on the on the role at Mass General, but 
do you know what you're walking into? Because that's a, that's a real, um, I forget how, exactly how he described it. He said, it's not the small loving family that we are out here at Cooley Dickinson. I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, what have I done? I'm walking into this kind of behemoth of a beast. Nothing could have been further from the truth. From the right? day I arrived at Mass General, that was one of the most caring, loving, and that, that probably sounds antithetical to folks that know the size of the organization, but I, and it came down to the people, the people that I got to work with were just some of the most superhuman beings doing some of their best work. Yeah, in a very different environment. You go from a 200 and however many bed hospital in Cooley Dickinson to a 1,000 bed hospital, you know, on the banks of the Giles River there. Very, very different. But my goodness, what a what a special, special place. So just some of the most, still to this day, some of my yeah, finest friends and favorite people. So what was it like moving to that level of scale? I mean, so they were welcoming to you. They must have had a need, though, because, I mean, they're, again, bringing you in for that same kind of role. Do, were they were they struggling with the same kind of challenges, just at a different scale? What was the what was the so what was the role really like? So the role was less operationally focused than than um, than Cooley Dickinson was, right? So I had to get used to that. So it wasn't about having you know eight direct reports that were very much running an operation. Right? So it wasn't one of your reports was going off and running food service, and one of your reports was. It was much more a team of consultants that was going to have to do more by um, influence and through collaboration um, than it was, um, you know, 300, 400 people reporting to you. So that was very different. The, The other thing is I'd had experience reporting directly to the CEO in my last, whatever that was, two roles. And now I walked into an environment where I had a dual report. So I actually reported to two people. One was on the physician organization side of the, of the, of the system. So, if, you know, for those of you who know healthcare, that was, you know, the PO. So I reported to a doc and the PO, and then I reported to the chief nurse on the hospital side. of the, So that took some getting used to as well, right? So, you know, dual report just requires some, um, you have to walk in eyes wide open and it requires some clarity of conversation, clarity of expectation. It worked really well because of the two people I reported to. The primary job when we got there was um, how do we convert data that we had tons of into, kind of how do we how do we turn that data into actionable different ways of working so that we get different outcomes. Because when we looked at the data, it was probably a similar, it wasn't as bad, but it was probably a similar situation as we were walking to at Cooley Dickinson. And for an organization that prides itself on excellence and on being recognized as one of the best in the field, the data we were looking at was antithetical to that. And so that was the ask pretty early on was how do we improve uh, our patients perceptions and experiences of the care they're receiving and it ran a a gamut of different projects but a lot of the the a lot of the early days of that was me just immersing myself and my team in in the work of our caregivers what does it mean to be a you know a thoracic surgeon on your feet for 12 hours a day well the only way you know that is to go and ask if you can shadow a thoracic surgeon for 12 hours. 
Go spend 24 hours in a wheelchair and navigate the campus. Go walk in the shoes of the, the, the nurses on the floors and the techs in the OR and the food service workers in the cafeteria. And so a lot of it early days was probably maybe not, not full-time, right? But, you know, a good three to six months of just immersing myself in what is their work like and do I understand it and can I speak their language? And that was AI opening lessons I'll never forget. And it drove a lot of the work we ended up doing because you get to work in these people's shoes and you go, my God, it's just, it's just bloody difficult to do your work. And you don't know when your patients are being admitted to the ED. And you don't know how long it's going to take to turn around an OR. And you don't know who's on your, your, you know, who's your scrub nurse. And you don't know this, you don't know this. And then your anesthesiologist is late and then your patient's not prepped. And then, and then, and then, and then, and, and then you don't have your equipment. And, and then at the end of, and then someone, you know, flippantly tells you that so-and-so is on the phone and you just scrubbed in. And then on top of all that, someone comes along and tells you, oh, by the way, Dr. Mark, um, your patients were asked about their experience of care and they thought you were a bit, um, a bit curt with your answers or a bit impatient. And you just look around and go, well, no wonder. We've just made it bloody difficult to be our best selves. And so we, we learned that from the inside in, and that drove some programs that we then put together and had a lot of fun. What, uh, can you give an example of the kind of thing you put together, say, I, I don't know, from your, physician, from your physician perspective? What was it that you um, – what can you give an example of a yeah, program maybe you put yeah, in place after you did all this? We had a fun platform as well, and, and don't get me wrong, we, we were provided an environment that was just, just made doing this fun. And, and so the PO had a, had a, a performance improvement incentive uh, for, their, for their physicians. And it's, it was a it's glorified way of saying they, were with, with, they would withhold a small amount of the physician's annual compensation and then release it if that uh, clinician physician attended a certain... Um, number of hours of education and so we just realized that 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 platform existed and we we kind of went to that with well let's make this year's or i think a part of this year's um how might we improve patients uh clinician communication so the organization's a great idea then the question was well how to do that on an on a, on a careful kind of budget conscious um in a budget conscious way well, when you're at Mass General, much like at many organizations, you've got some experts within your own halls. And so we kind of just, we asked around and we said, okay, anybody, anybody crafting a particular piece of research or expertise or coursework that you want to share with your colleagues around improving communication? And people just start coming out of the woodwork. And they were already faculty. And so... yeah. Right. And so we got Helen Reese, who founded the firm Empathetics and has done this, you know, just some, some of the most remarkable research on, on how do you tr- teach empathy. Helen said, well, I can teach people how to be more empathetic. We thought, oh, that's one course. <laughs> just did that. Then we had a whole crew that would think with Greg Meyer had just come back from learning about how do you create a just culture so that it's safe to speak up and, and safe to share when you might perceive that a colleague is, is um, quote unquote, acting out or being less than um appropriate professional or otherwise so we had that and then i forget we had we had another one i'm forgetting oh we, we had an incredible um 
uh, um, individual whose name is escaping me, it doesn't matter, but she'd done this amazing piece of work about uh, kind of using patient, using actors to help people have um, very difficult end of life conversations. So, mm. and then, so we kind of, and then we found, okay, well, maybe we'll also, we'll create, and we just wrote a curriculum. I think a colleague and I wrote a, a pretty basic curriculum on teaching communication basics. And so between these four buckets, we had built a curriculum that we could then through the summer take the 2000 attendings at Mass General through. And the reason they came to class was because they were going to get some of their income back. So it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty um, basic, I suppose. Um, and then and the course we put together was, was just pretty straightforward. And I think I was struck by the expectations we sometimes have of people without empathetically understanding the resources they have not been given. So we would, we would take them the data. We would take clinicians the data and say, well, your patients say that you don't explain things in a way that's easy to understand. Well, of course I do. Well, why don't you show me how you explain something? And so playing the tape back, giving people the data, and then showing people some research that suggests, and this isn't new to, to, to folks, but so showing people research that suggests that a patient uh, overestimates the amount of time you spend with them if you sit. They overestimate the amount of time you, sit, you spend with them if you look them in the eye when you're communicating with them. And so these really little just tips um, and, and a safe environment to talk about it and a safe environment to practice. So we kind of rolled that out. And again, it, it's not rocket science, but it's the empathy to appreciate that folks might not have had it and then the time and the grace and the space to go do it. So when we were afforded all of that. Neat. Yeah. Well, you, you were at MassGen for a couple of years, and then you joined a firm called, uh, I think this is an acronym, C-R-I-C-O, CRICO? Control Risk Insurance Company. So is this, this was, uh, looking at this, this is something affiliated with MassGen and uh, partners? Yeah, so CRICO is the largest, oldest uh, captive insurance company in, in the country for medical malpractice insurance. Okay. And it's, it's um, best way to describe it is almost think about it like a mutual. So it, it provides medical malpractice insurance for any, any, anyone or anything. That's a little crude, but forgive me, affiliated with the Harvard Medical School. So if you are a practicing clinician um, within a Harvard Medical Institution, you are insured um, by CRICO. So uh, CRICO is a, bottom line is CRICO is an insurance company that also then uses um, its data from medical malpractice claims to improve patient safety, mitigate risk, and, and reduce loss, which of course makes sense to the owners and the shareholders because if you can bend those curves, you are costing yourself less from an insurance standpoint. So that's what CRICO is. Okay. So you are not an insurance guy. No. So I assume you went, so you, what was the capacity you went over to them for? So Crico has a small um, division called Crico Strategies. And so Crico cannot and does not uh, sell its uh, medical malpractice insurance on the commercial market. What it can do is that latter part of what I was just describing is it can uh, sell um, membership in and access to what is ostensibly a, an enormous database of medical malpractice claims. 
And so we, Craig of Strategies is a, is a little, uh, when I got there, it was kind of 10 people strong, a department of Crico that provides external uh, consulting services to hospitals that want to learn from their medical malpractice data how to uh, mitigate risk and improve um, improve outcomes. I'm going to guess <laughs> that there may be a question about how do you go from patient experience to medical malpractice patient safety? And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you were doing some safety stuff, I assume, right? Yeah. So in, in your capacity. But I mean, this is a big, it's a pretty big jump. Well, partly I'd learned about Crico at Mass General and because Crico um, incredibly insightfully supports programs at its member hospitals, of course, which Mass General was one, um, that better educate and train clinicians so that they're less likely to be unsafe. I mean, put, kind of go further down the, 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 the river, if you like less likely to get sued. It's in Crico's best interest to make sure that those programs are funded properly. So we had, I had seen a couple of programs be funded at Mass General by this organization called Crico. So I'd gotten to know it a little. The, the headline that really opened me up to their work more broadly was reading an article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, I forget. Um, but it was authored by the, this guy called Bob Hanscom about the crosswalk between patient complaints and medical malpractice cases. And it just resonated with me um, because, in fact, it had been a lot of our conversations with the docs at Mass General is improving your skills of communication and um, showing a patient that you care about them as a person is not just good for the patient-doctor-patient-clinician relationship, and there's plenty of studies to show that. It's also when something does go wrong, because it might, they're less likely to sue you. A clinician getting sued is one of the most painful things to watch um, someone you care about go through in their career. It's just it's just heartbreaking. I think any of us getting sued as a person is, is a heartbreak. And so this, this very quickly, even when I was at Mass General, became just this, it was like, these are two peas in a pod. This wasn't just about let's get good patient satisfaction scores. No, this was let's give you the tools to get terrific outcomes and actually kind of mitigate the, 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 some of the reasons why people might sue. And so then reading this article um, by Bob where there was a deep dive into this crosswalk of patient complaints and then why it is that people sue, the funny thing for me at the time is we had engaged a consultant at Mass General who had the same name, same last name was Hanscom. So I went to Diane and I said, I read this really cool article by this guy called Bob who works for this company called Crico. And she just started laughing. She goes, it's my husband. And she goes, you guys should talk. You guys should have lunch. And so we went out for lunch and they were looking for someone to partner with uh, one of the other executives at Crico to consult business development in this space of improving patient safety through, through better understanding why it is that people sue it. And that just, I suppose, again, now that you've got me thinking about it, Mark, I thought, why not try something new? <laughs> yeah. But that's definitely, I can see a, a line there. That, yeah. Like, you know, yeah. it, you're talking about it as being, I mean, a lot of that, a lot of what you just talked about was just like satisfaction, like, you know, making people believe that you cared, not just 
not just looking at the technical health care delivery portion of the safety, but I mean, that, that seems like that's been your, that's been something you've been doing, had been doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you, when you, when you, and I learned this at Crico, I mean, when we would ask, and they did some really robust research and they do some phenomenal research and deep dives into the data. But when you ask patients, why did they sue? You know, why did you, you know, turn to the nuclear option? It's not because I was injured. Sometimes it is, right? Sometimes I want monetary um, relief for a lifelong, of, you know, for what's now going to be a life of, 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 you know, medical bills. I get it. But sometimes, Mark, it was as straightforward as they didn't listen to me. They didn't get back to me. They didn't treat me with respect. I don't want anyone else treated like this. And then when you, and then what was really heartbreaking uh, and I saw this at Mass General, was when you would then turn around to the doctor, the named clinician that was getting sued, and you, you share all this and say, you know, what is, how does this make you feel? And it gets really emotional. And they say, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to say it. I didn't know that it was okay to say I'm sorry. And you just go, oh, my God, well, we've created this completely – we designed a broken, we, we have by lack of design created a broken system. We haven't given the clinicians the resources to even have these conversations. It was just heartbreaking. I mean, I remember hearing a story at Mass General about a pediatrician who, I mean, they knew from the day this little kid was born that he was going to have a short life. And just he had too many comorbidities to not. Um, and this doctor had been a part of his care team from the age of birth through, I think, what was maybe 11. and when you heard the mom's side of the story of how the doc communicated that these were his final days, and then you heard the doc's side of the story, both just brought you to tears because the mom's saying the doctor all of a sudden felt aloof, disengaged, didn't care about us, um, just wanted Joe for the purpose of today to mm -hmm. die. And then you hear the doctor saying, I had poured 10 years of my life into this kid's life. I couldn't save him. I didn't know what to do. And so you start to see both sides of this heartbreaking reality and go, well, we, we got to do better people. We, 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 we got to, we got to lean in and find a better way. Yeah. What was it like moving to the consulting side? Cause you had always had internal clients, right? Yeah. If, if you will, you were, you were an inside asset. Now you're, now you're outwardly focused. You're talk. you're, you're, providing services to a variety, I guess, a variety of clients, right? So this is really your first click consulting role, correct? Yeah, very much so. We've done a little bit at Mass General. One of the beautiful parts of working at Mass General is because of the brand recognition, um, sure. and not just the brand, just because of the the organization that you're fortunate enough to be, to be partnered with and a, and a part of. Our folks turn to Mass General and say, hey, you guys do this at Mass General. You must know the answer. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> we would be very, we were very fortunate to be afforded some of that grace. So we've begun to do a little bit of it there. Um, but yeah, really getting to Crico was was a wild opportunity. And what I had realized that I was, I was drawn to this space of polite, kind. Would I, would I work hard to be polite and kind? Truth telling and. and 
not from a place of I want to tell you the truth because I want to I want to use it as a weapon, but I want to tell you the truth because together, if we know the truth, we we can we and if it's not a truth that we want to keep perpetuating, we can do something about it. And that was the that was the reality of what of what you learn when you're looking at an organization's kind of malpractice or um, you know loss history. You get to sit with the CEO and say, hey, we've just looked at your anesthesia. Um, rates, um, severity, and what it's costing you. And you're an outlier when you look at other hospitals your size. And if you do that, if you have that conversation in the right place, at the right time, in the right way, with the right data, people open up and, and people get real and people go, I, I don't want that to be the case. And and it just, that for me is a very... Um, What's the right word? It's just a very, uh, it's a very um, authentic. Um, it's almost there's almost a I don't want to get there's almost a spiritual nature to it, right? It's when when you sit across one on one with another human being mm-hmm. who's who's got a big job, right? Um, and and you're able to connect with them as a person and go, you know. It's okay. Uh, we 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 can work this out, and uh, I, I just that's a very humbling, um, special place to be, and I and I and I love it uh, because I don't know why I love it. I just love it. I just it's very it's very special to do. So, what I didn't realize it at the time, but that's that's what I was drawn to, and, and Craig allowed me to to do more and more of that. Kind of. So, what was different about? being a consultant as opposed to being primarily focused on, you know, the internal organization? The, the upside and the shadow side of not seeing something through to its, to its full kind of life cycle, right? You know, so if I go back to Cooley Dickinson or even, you know, Mass General, we were, we could, we could go from birth, to full maturity of a project. And I, and I mean that quite literally, right? We could sit in a room with nothing and just our ideas and go, wouldn't it be cool if we created a pediatric hospitalist program? And everyone looked at us and said, you're going to do what? I said, well, that wouldn't it be great if we had a 24? And so you go from nothing to building a business plan, to recruiting, to bringing people on board, to establishing a program, to, to then, you know, three, four years down the road, looking back over your shoulder and not being able to manage, imagine a situation where you didn't have that. And, and, and the same with buildings. I mean, you build a building, you go from it's a parking lot where people park cars to, you know, two years later, there's people getting surgery in a state-of-the-art building that you can proudly, proudly go to bed at night and go, I had a hand in that. And, and to consulting where more often than not, you don't get to see something through its full life cycle. So that was very different. And what I found difficult at the time was I didn't like the word consultant because I'd had a bad experience through my career with it, which is typically the consultant was going to be the person that was going to show up at some great expense, was going to tell me what I wasn't doing right, was going to carry on like they knew my job better than I did. And a lot of the time, probably 40, 50% of the time, consultants had actually been 
folks that were going to show up who were going to cut expenses out of my budget so that we're going to actually impact people's lives. So that felt antithetical to helping people. So I had a real hard time for a while even calling myself a consultant. It felt a little, um, I don't know, it just didn't, it wasn't something I was comfortable with. Um, I had my own hang-ups about it. And it was my, I was going to, you know, my doing. No, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was just silly. Well, you, uh, you were with Crico for um, uh, almost five years and then joined a company called Wellesley Partners, which is a general management consulting company. Yeah. So how did you make that jump? So Wellesley isn't healthcare per se, right? It's a, it, they've got a broader, um, do they have, are, are they, a, I, 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 didn't, I didn't pick up that they were a specifically a healthcare um, They are. Um, oh, they are. Okay. Very small. Um and I had known Wellesley Partners since first ever getting to Cooley Dickinson. And they were actually the antithesis of what I just described as consultant. So when, and, and they were the bright spot that I would kind of look at. And, and Tim Sullivan, who's the, the founder and principal of Wellesley Partners, I would look at him and go, and I'd go, wow, Tim's, Tim's the kind of consultant that if, if I was ever going to be one one day, you know, that's what I want to do because that's authentic okay. and that's real and that's polite and kind and and yet also pragmatic and kind of cuts through the BS. So what happened was I we were wrapping up a piece of work at it – it got really complicated. We were wrapping up a piece of work at Crico at UMass. Oh, okay. And the other interesting – thing at the time was Wellesley Partners was providing consulting services to Crico. I was sitting with the CEO at UMass who, this was not the first time in my career, he was trying to recruit me. And the conversation went something like this. He said, you know, my patient experience scores uh, are deplorable. I know you weren't here doing a patient experience assessment. You were here doing a safety risk assessment. But you also picked up on, and, and there were some really kind of bad practices that they, he was that they were engaged in. Again, not through intent, I think, just through default. Um, and I said, "Okay, what are you going to do about it?" He said, "I'm going to hire you to be my chief experience officer." And I said, "That's not the right answer." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "This is the second time in your career I've made you an offer, and you don't want to come work with me. Is it me?" I said, "No, I think you're asking the wrong question." I said, "I don't think you know enough about the problem." that simply hiring into a role that's got the right words in it is the, is the way to improve the culture to improve your patient experience. And so this is kind of all my hotel operations experience is kind of, kind of coming back to the forefront. But I was, and the other thing I shared with him, I said, how do you think it will play out to the rest of your senior team if something as basic as um, the experience of care that our patients are reporting is, is somehow going to be solved by me making another I forget what the, it doesn't matter what the number was, but you know these are significantly expensive payroll positions. I said, what I will do for you is I'll, I'll consider consulting for you, and together we'll work out what the problem is, and then we'll design a plan to get us out of the hole. And I'll act if you want as your interim chief experience officer, but I'll do it as a consultant. He said, you're hired, and of course then I had to sit there and think, well. Technically, I'm still an employee of Crico. How do I do this? And so the way I did it, Mark, was by joining Wellesley Partners. I left Crico, joined Wellesley Partners, because that gave me the platform upon which to then consult. And so it it, it actually came about really rather naturally. 
Um, and then the wonderful thing was I didn't get con to consult as a brand new, you know, single shingle hanging individual. I got to have, you know, some, some resources in, in, in Tim and some of the other partners behind me that we could actually consult on other aspects of, of his business strategy and other things. So it was just, again, right place, right time. And, um, you know, throwing something out there, <laughs> saying yes, or just saying, sure, I'll do it. And he said, okay, let's do it. So that's how that happened. Okay. So you're, you were there for about three years with uh, Wellesley. Yep. And, uh, how was that experience different from the work you were doing with Crico? I mean, you were doing consulting with Crico. Was it, how is that? How is that um, different? Very small company, uh, Wellesley okay. Partners. So um, when you are, you know, I think it, it, we were an end of, we were small. I mean, I think the polite way of saying it is boutique. Um, and so you are, um, when you are on an interim gig, like then I was for 14 months, um, I wasn't out doing business development. I wasn't out doing, you know, Creating collateral. I wasn't out building relationships. I wasn't out doing because you couldn't be in an end of one. And we were a very small firm. So um, that was very different. Um, and while we're in healthcare, it was a more general consulting to healthcare. So it was less specific around uh, patient safety, risk mitigation. It was more general around organizational development um, organizational behavior culture change service improvement so it was it was much it was it was a, a broader waterfront in some respects and a very small team you left wellesley partners to come to tier one which is where you are uh today tier one performance solutions yeah uh, tier one is also a management consulting yeah. firm uh you have on your linkedin profile i am on a mission with tier one healthcare to improve the performance of organizations through the performance of its people to build a better world. That's a, that's a, um, that's a significant mission. I like that. That's it. So, so what does that mean? Um, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> it, it's, I mean, you know, I suppose you could look at it um, and consider it a little Pollyanna and, and I've been called Pollyanna in my career and I, and I've, I, I don't really care anymore. Um, I think organizations are people. I mean, bottom line. I mean, the 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 buildings we walk into, the policies, the procedures. The, these are these are these are. This is not what brings an organization's work to life. I mean, you know it, Mark. You know, in, in your role. I mean, it's it's the it's the relationships we're in. It's how we show up. It's how engaged we are. And and I, I truly believe that 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 the organizations that I see saw and make a difference are. Uh, due to the, the the people that make them up, and I think if we can unleash, if we can unleash that, and get out of the way of it, um, and build it up, and give people the tools and the resources to be their best selves, I do. I think we can change the world. What do I mean? Uh, further to that, I mean you don't have to go too far to research the fact of how many people. Um, are truly disengaged in their work, truly miserable. I mean, and I know that we're in a time right now where there's a lot of folks who are out of work, so so um, being s sensitive to that. But there's a lot of folks I know that don't enjoy what they do, and I think it's it's kind of heartbreaking that that's also the message 
that we're telling our children. I mean, at the end of the day, unless our children, and, and I'm not, but unless you're independently wealthy and don't have to work, you kind of got to do something to pay the bills, right? And I'm just struck by the gift we either do or do not give the next generation when work's anything other than something we love doing and, and are in it with people that we trust and respect and have our backs. And we believe every day that we can, we can make a difference. So I'm rambling a bit, but, but that's probably some kind of themes to why I believe that to be the, to be the case. So tier one healthcare, is that a sub, that's a subdivision of yeah. tier one. So they're yeah. there. They do. We had a little conversation about the organization. So they do more than just healthcare. Oh yeah. So you're in a, so I take it. It's a much larger organization yeah. than Wellesley was. Yeah. It's about 250 people now regionally, regionally um, located from Ohio up to DC to Boston, out to Denver, Pittsburgh, Atlanta. And so how do you fit into the healthcare division? How does that, how does the healthcare division work? If it's a, it's a big organization with a, it doesn't have the same kind of geographic footprint that, that Wellesley, a much bigger footprint than like Wellesley would have. I assume. Yeah, much bigger. So yeah, you, you nailed it. I mean, healthcare is a, is really, we think about healthcare at tier one as almost, it sounds weird, but we think about it as a, as a, as a geography. I mean, it's, it's a market that, that is unique enough from what folks buy that that we have carved out healthcare, and we've also carved out government as as particularly kind of specialized verticals that we that we sell to because it requires a slightly different knowledge set, language, expertise, skill, and there's a different ask of us as well. So, specifically in healthcare, uh, right now we do a lot of accreditation, regulatory preparation and management of those types of programs for uh, hospitals and hospital systems. We also do, so put another way, we, we prevent people from getting into regulatory distress. And if they are in there, we, we help get them out. And it's through a very, we have a very um, expert level of, of consultants that, that, that know that world better than anybody. Um, so when an organization is in is in a bind from a regulatory standpoint, they call us, and we okay. go help. And then we do a lot of other. Um, kind of, we, we we provide a lot of other services and offerings uh, in in the space that I would describe as human performance challenges. So we help hospitals identify their problems and solve them. And typically, if they've got human beings associated with them, then we can help. <laughs> Most hospitals have some human beings in them. Most hospitals have some human beings, Mark. Yes, they do. (laughs) And uh, most of the time, those human beings, yeah, need a little support in, or need support in how it is that we might help improve performance. You know, I've never done consulting work. So, I mean, I think some people kind of have this, you know, similar to what your experience was, you know, they, they see it from the outside or this people show up. I mean, how does it all work? How do you, um, how does how does a, a job come about? How do you come to be on that team? How, how does how does that all work? <laughs> uh, great question. Um, one of those things doesn't look like the other. I mean, none of them look like the same. You know, they ne- they never repeat. If you think you've figured it out, that they uh, so they 
they all, I think it would be fair to say, come through relationships. So someone somewhere has got to either they either they know someone at tier one, they know they know of our work, they've heard of our work through someone. So a really deep, rich connection of relationships. We get passed around, right? So it's the kind of best, it's the best way to get referred is to get passed around by someone who loves what you do. And I'm not kidding you, man. It gets emotional. We we had a client last week who who said, I love you guys. I can't imagine us being where we are today without you. The way you guys showed up and you listened and you... So let me start there. So the, the, the how we get the work is through our reputation, through our relationships. And then in really large organizations, when you do work that a department loves... And they're all standing around because not so much now, but the proverbial water cooler. Um, and someone says, well, how did you get out of that bind? You go, oh, well, we used tier one. Oh, you did? Can, can you connect me with them? So so we get passed around internally as well. And and, and and don't get me wrong. Then there is some there's some prospecting elements to our business development where we are going out and we just had a call this morning. I go, you know, okay, in this geography, who, who would be, who do we think it would be uh, fun, interesting, of value to work with? And, and how might we go and tell our story to them and, and do it in a way that's, that's, I guess the word that keeps coming to mind, Mark, is just do it in a way that's empathetic, to do it in a way that's, that doesn't come from a place of we're tier one and we've got all these things that we're going to sell you, but does it from a place of we'd love to know what's, what 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 are you grappling with? What are you working on? What's getting in the way? Um, and you know, so identify the problem, understand the need to want to solve that problem. If we can then show someone how it is that we have either done that in the past or might do that in the future, so then it gets into we will walk into situations where we don't necessarily have an answer. Or we one of our CEO Greg said something wonderful the other day. We don't necessarily have to always be right, but we will get it right. So we 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 take we don't take ourselves that seriously. We've got to be we've always got to be right up front, or we've always got to have all the answers. We'll get it right because if we listen long enough to the right people, and then we um, solution it properly with enough creative, compassionate, talented individuals, which is essentially what Till One's full of. We'll, we'll get it right. So relationships, some hunting, some fishing was, was your answer to how we get the work. Projects kind of emerge when we listen and then we understand what the work is. Uh, how we end up on projects is either we internally will look around and go, I need a really good instructional designer or I need a really good creative resource or I need a and we'll go and pick them or we'll also we have a pretty robust process internally to say hey i'm working on this project with this healthcare organization i need four of these who wants in and people go oh i'll get in i'll get in i'll get in so do you only work with healthcare do you you personally i know tier one not but okay so you you now go outside of the healthcare industry yeah in fact my first uh, consulting gig at, at Tier one was actually with Virgin Voyages. So Richard Branson's launched a Virgin oh. a cruise line, which of course is is on pause right now. But my first consulting gig with Tier One was actually to go and be a um, 
a subject matter expert with my hotel background to some of their hiring um, challenges for a cruise line. So, yeah. Okay. What do you like most about the consulting role? What's the, what, uh, what keeps you fired up about it? You've been doing it for a few years now. Um, no two days are the same. No two clients are the same. I love being challenged and, and I love helping people. And if we can, if we can find a really meaty, juicy problem that, that folks are having a challenge with, and if we can help folks solve for that from a place of authenticity and kindness and compassion, that that's pretty sweet. Um, and working with people that, that that push me to be to be better. And you know, I turned fifty years old last year, and I'm I'm still learning every single day. And that's that's a pretty special place to be in. And that's because you're in an organization that forces you to learn all the time. So, I wouldn't say forces. I mean, it's an expectation that we have of each other. Um, it's uh, we walk into everything with a learning or a beginner's mindset. You know, kind of, and and that's not a world I was used to in in healthcare. Right? Everybody walks into the room professing to be the expert, and that always used to rub me the wrong way. And I didn't know why till I come and now know, which is. It's okay to have expertise, but I'd rather I'd rather walk in from a place of humility and just just listen. And, and uh, so, yeah, it's part of who we are. What um, what makes a good consultant? What kind of skills, knowledge, or attitude? What what is it that that makes someone effective in the field? My mother used to say, you know, you've got you've got uh, two eyes, two ears, one mouth. Use them proportionately. That's probably a lot of it. Right, it's kind of patience with self as much as with client. I, I get very excited if if I think I see a solution and I want to kind of you know I can almost get giddy. I want, I want to tell you what the answer is, and so it's patience to say, okay, Richard, just stop. Don't rush to solve. So it's patience, persistence. I mean, I jokingly said to one of our younger business development folks this morning, "You got to kiss a lot of frogs." It's just persistence. <laughs> Don't take it too personally. Humility, um, uh, yeah, just and being okay with kind of live experimentation. You know, kind of being okay saying, "I don't know what the answer is, but I know together we can figure it out." So it's it, probably those traits, and probably a little bit of hustle. You know, there's a we're a professional services firm. I mean, we, we, if we're not utilized something's not working on the business side of things. So there's, there's always this kind of tension of uh, all this creative, interesting, fun work, but then how do we stay, how do we stay utilized? How do we make sure that we've got the right people working on the right projects? And then not to, to not to, this is going to sound really a bit kind of antithetical, not to celebrate a win too long. And I've had to learn that the hard way. Say, okay, you want a client, great. Get that project rolling. Now get onto the... <laughs> and, and if that's... And that and that might not work for folks, but it, it, it seems to work for me. It's like, okay, win, the win was won on Friday. Now we need to get back. It's Monday. And we need to get back onto what's next. So, <laughs> so cool. Well, that's a... I mean, that's a, a, a treadmill. Uh, I don't know. That's That sounds intimidating in some ways, right? Like, Like there's no time to... Sit back. Oh, there is. I mean, there's a ton of time uh, to celebrate. Yeah. I think you do it. Sure. Um, 
you know, I don't mean to imply that it's a treadmill. It's it's again if it if it if it appeals to you, it appeals to you. It's it's uh, and again doing it with people that I have a friend, Steve Farber, my mentor, and you know he he talks often about you know do what you love in the service of people who love what you do, and we get to do that every day. So it doesn't. It doesn't really feel like consulting. It doesn't feel like sales, but it is. I mean, we're a consulting firm. We know what we are, but it stops feeling like that. <laughs> well, let me uh, let me toss you a couple of quick leadership questions, and I'll I'll let you go. So, I, one of the things I like to ask senior leaders is, um, "What's your leadership philosophy?" <laughs> I lead with love. Um, I lead with optimism and I lead with a a growth, you know, what we think of as an infinite mindset. Mm. Um, I, I, I lead from a place of trust and transparency and, and, and not trust that you have to earn, but trust that I will give you. And um, it's not something you have to earn. It just, I, I trust people. And now prove me wrong, fine, but... Um, and I, I lead from a, I, I lead with laughter as well. I suppose laughter and love and take my job seriously without taking myself too seriously. Who did you learn that from? <laughs> Probably a bunch of people. Robin Brown at the Four Seasons, um, John Lowe, my professor at Simmons, Linda Galindo, Steve Farber. Uh, there's a, I'm learning it today from everybody on my tier one team from Greg Harmeyer, Jerry Hamburg, Brian Lapthorne, Katie Fry, Anna Wolf, just some ver- and Dustin Shell. I mean, just incredible people that get to show up to work with every day that, that uh, embody that. And then also provide harsh feedback when, when necessary and appropriate. And I think that this that be another thing I reflect on. I think feedback when delivered in a timely way is one of the most loving things we can do for for other people. What do you look for when you're hiring leaders or maybe if you were hiring a consultant, maybe, and I don't know if those would be the same thing. Um, probably some of what I just articulated, right? I mean, do you take do you take your work seriously without taking yourself too seriously? Um, I suppose if I go through an interview and someone hasn't laughed and we haven't kind of joked about something, I'd be a little weary or leery about hiring. Uh, I think having that beginners and or learners mindset. I think every time we walk into a scenario with a, with a prospect or a client or even an existing relationship, being a an engaged learner and beginner, uh, even if we have a wealth of expertise and experience that we bring to the table, it's an important trait to to bring to bear. And then I suppose a desire to want to share with others. So both, again, when we think about expertise, it's not that I am an expert, therefore I'm going to tell you something, but I have expertise that if the time is right and the place is right and the opportunity is right, I'm going to share it. Um, I have insights I want to share or I have relationships I want to share. I mean, I, I've been blessed now, you know, have many years into a career to have a ton of really good relationships. They're not selfishly mine um, other than I'm blessed to have really good relationships with people. I want to share those. I want, I want to, you know, I want to give them away and, and not in any kind of insincere way, but in a way that we, we should be connecting good people with good people and, 
and so if I can, if I get, it, it's relatively easy, I think, to get that sense from is, is this person across from you or with you, thinking along the same, the same mindset. I suppose. I like what you just said about you know giving away relationships. Uh, so that makes me, I, I, so I want to ask you about mentors. Um, you you sounds like you've had some good experience with mentors and 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 mentorship. What does that mean to you? What what does a good mentor do? Yeah, just probably what we were just talking about, Mark, shares unconditionally. I mean, I think a good and acknowledges that the mentor, sometimes I grapple with mentor-mentee seems to be this kind of almost like a hierarchical relationship where for me, the best opportunities to to mentor, I've been mentored as much as the mentee, if that makes any sense. You know, there's always something to learn. Um, and you get to learn from someone perhaps at a different stage of their career or perhaps in a different space or perhaps, you know, in, in, in a different part of their part of their world. So I think that's that's always kind of rolling around in my head. I think the other thing would be, it would be most folks that are either where I'm at or further beyond in their career um, have have had an experience where they've either needed to connect with someone, needed to um, network, needed to ask for help, needed to, you know, have been in a junior space or place. And I think we just have to remember that. And so sometimes I see kind of more junior people, what we typically class, you know, label as mentees, having a really hard time finding a mentor or having a really hard time networking and, Oh, and I, I just think for those of us that are, um, you know, further into our career, we were there once and we owe it, we owe it to folks to unconditionally share and unconditionally network and unconditionally connect and, and, and just do people the solid. So last question, um, you know, I, I teach primarily in an undergraduate program. So for young people entering the field, going into health administration, um, why should they think about a career in consulting? Or maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they should wait. Uh, it's a really good question, um, Mark, and, and I hear it a lot, which is, you know, I want to be a consultant. And, and, and it's, it's a really broad bucket. And, and we could probably spend another hour and a half on that. But so it's, I would say less about, think less about, wanting to be a consultant, more about figuring out what success looks like for you for whatever this next chapter is. Um, and as you can see, I've probably rewritten some of those chapters every five or so years. And, and, and it should be rewritten. It changes. I don't know about you, but, you know, my definitions of success when Robin and I were first, you know, when I was shifting from the hotel business into healthcare, we had one child, were very different than they are now when that tap at the door back there was, you know, my 17-year-old going off to work saying, can I take the car? I mean, you've got different things in your life. So figure out what you want success, what success looks like and, and get really kind of, kind of very kind of tangible, you know, very practical about that. And it looks like I'm doing this. Find folks that, that, that do that work and, and resonate with you so that and, and if there's an opportunity to then kind of come alongside and learn with them and from them, that's awesome. That might be in consulting. 
But I think the challenge for a lot of young folks coming out of college thinking about consulting is you can go and join a consulting firm. You can go and call yourself a consultant if that title is something that's important to you. What you'll likely do coming off a undergraduate or graduate degree is you'll end up joining a large firm as probably an intern um, and then just kind of start climbing the ladder and you'll be a junior consultant on a lot of big projects and you'll do a lot of number crunching, data work. You may get to put some PowerPoint presentations, but it's going to be the senior consultants, the principals, the partners. Um, they're going to do the real, what we've been talking about. So I think the question is really broader. What is it? Why do you think you want to be consultant? What is it about it? And some people will say, well, oh, the, the travel looks really glamorous. Well, that's honest, but it ain't glamorous. But <laughs> if you don't want to travel, consulting is probably not your gig. But so... I guess it's less about consulting and more about kind of what it is you want to do and, and who do you want to be doing it with. Let's let's answer for that. Because the other thing, my natural response to, to folks that are younger in their career is, what are you going to consult about? I mean, and more often than not, someone's going to give me an operational challenge to, 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 to ponder that I'm going to go, I've seen something that looks a little bit like this. Or if I haven't, I'm going to pick up the phone and call Mark because he he might have. And, and, and if he hasn't, he's going to pick up the phone and call so-and-so. So we've got a network. We've got some experience. We've got some expertise. We're not going to be too easily put off. We're not going to be too easily offended. And, and, and I just – so can all of that be in, in, in the heart, mind, hand, soul of, of a – a new college grad? For sure. I'm not implying that. But I think the bigger question is, what do I really want to do? And I've probably by accident become a consultant. I don't think I ever said, you know, I want to be a consultant one day. But maybe I did. I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question, Mark. That's pretty good. Well, Richard, thank you so much for your time today and your generous uh, sharing of your uh, of your story. Thank you, my friend. I really enjoyed it. And uh, it's a pleasure chatting with you. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to The Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.